This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents... Christopher... (laughs) Were you waiting for me to say it? And Eric... I forgot my own name! I'm sorry, do you need me to be quiet while you say your name? It's a super important intro. Yeah, because everybody's forgotten who I am since the first time we said it. Um... Uh, yeah, you're really, uh, you're really, well, uh, silly pants listen. this morning. What's going there, on? There's, there's the show before the show, as we all talk about the podcast before the podcast. And apparently I do not pronounce certain words correctly. My Southern heritage rears its, um, it's, uh, uh, ethnic head, it's regional head, that's it's it. regional head. And I, for years called it nestle crunch. And apparently it's Nestle Crunch. Nestle. Nestle. It's Nestle Crunch, not Nestle Crunch. Is right. I was saying Nestle Crunch. And so we were having a little laugh about that before the show started. And you could just say it was still in my head and it was distracting me because that's mostly what Eric Sharkwin does. But you here. were doing like this me. Wink Martindale voice when we started. You're just all over. You're just Mr. Silly Pants today. Well, it is a sort of a, it is a silly um intro and i think we do it that way on purpose because we're um we're silly it's guys pretty matter of fact yeah I, we introduce pod- ourselves and then say this is the show with the two of us so but most podcasts i don't feel like they even introduce themselves like they just hit record and then they're like hi we're gonna talk about barbecue and crime <laughs> you know like they're just like I and like that combination, crime and prime. Crime and prime—that's a great title. I actually, there, I think there's a podcast out there somewhere called Keto and Crime. I saw, I saw it scroll past at some point, well, and I guess she talks about keto cooking and crime, I'm, right? Yeah. Lately, she doesn't I've think we all about it. stole her brand. Okay, so we're back this week. Enough, enough, silly. Enough, enough. Laughter. Now we have to get down to business. We've got important stuff to do here. We've got really We've got important got stuff. Trashy television shows to talk about. By God. Yeah, and um, it's it's Happy New Year to everyone out there and, and oh, all yeah. our party people. Happy mm-hmm. New Year! If you're listening to this in you know real time, then we just uh, we just got past the threshold. We just ended the worst year that I can certainly ever remember. Mm-hmm. Although you know, like the Dark Ages, the plague, they've probably been worse, but not that I am old enough. Even I am not old enough to remember back to mm-hmm. uh, the Black yeah. Death. Yeah, it's 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 not the Black Death, but it's close. That's the official tagline for 2020, uh, which we are now putting in our rear view as we enter the first days of 2021. So what better way to celebrate the new year than with a hideous crime story about a series of murders that took place over the New Year's holiday right? in Canada? 
So it's time for our usual disclaimers. I should stop calling them that because they're not disclaimers. They're more like promotions and invitations about what True Crime TV Club here at our podcast is about. So we're going to serve up an episode of True Crime Television for you. It is absolutely not at all a requirement that you watch it before listening to our discussion. Our job is to serve it up for you so that you feel like you've seen it without ever hitting play on anything except our podcast. But I will give you the episode in case you're curious and you want to pause and go watch so you can um, feel like a good student who did extra credit. The show is called Homicide for the Holidays. The episode title is Bloody New Year's. It is season two, episode eight. We have done this show before, right? We did some a Christmas episode of this show, yes, I think, recently. We did, yes, I actually did an episode. We did a Christmas episode of this show when we did our... um, And we may have done a double-stuffed episode as well at Thanksgiving. Yeah. We've really... We've yeah. come back to them because we've been looking for holiday-related shows. It's been really tough to leave this particular franchise. Absolutely. And I have so to they, say... They owe us a lot of money. They owe us a lot of money, but... um. They do a pretty good job, I think, of covering the cases they include. I and I'm not sure if it's if they're produced particularly for this series or if they are collected from other mm. true crime shows and amalgamated here. It's like Wives with Knives or any of the other of those um, detect those ID programs. It's um, it's about getting shows that are like-minded together. And I don't know mm-hmm. that they all come from the same place or not. I, I'm really not sure how they done, it. but it, it's very well curated and very well put together. And I have, I have found the, the crimes that we've covered from this particular series to be pretty fascinating and, and terrifying. God. They're just, absolutely, yeah. it's like, I, I had this thought without getting too far ahead of ourselves. Like, is there something particularly horrifying about crimes that take place at the holidays? Because this is the second holiday themed one we've done that was just absolutely, completely terrifying. I mean, there's always, it's an incredibly disturbing violation to have Christmas at least, which we did previously turned into a bloodbath, which is terrific. Um, But this does a similar thing to the days before new year's and by extension, the Christmas holiday in general. So it's a pretty big story. So I think we should maybe get right into it. And I guess it's um, at least, and I think all of the the ones that we have covered that have been those kinds of really disturbing crimes have been built around family based crime. Like mm-hmm. it's you're frequently likely to be murdered by the person that somebody that you know, but um, but these kinds of big event crimes where is yeah. because the whole family is together. Yeah, and someone isn't. Like, there's a level of alienation uh, towards the family. Anyway, won't get it. But that was definitely the case in the Spoiler Christmas alert, one. Spoiler alert, but yeah. Right. Yeah, that was definitely um, the case of the Christmas one and the Thanksgiving one. One note before we begin, uh, the forensic psychologist, who is one of the uh, talking head is a little dismissive, but one of the sort of general narrating interview subjects, Dr. Catherine Ramslin, wrote an authorized biography of my mother uh, called Prism of the Night. Yes, interesting. Absolutely. I knew. I was like, oh, there's Catherine. I ran into her at a conference a few years ago. She had moved really into forensic science. and That is so interesting. Yeah, huh. and she, she, she knows her stuff. Like sometimes on these specials, they'll haul out a media consultant to just say pre-scripted stuff about what killers do and how they think. But Dr. Catherine Ramslin is actually quite educated and has had a... A uh, long trackered, a track record, trackered, excuse me, in analyzing stories like these. All right. Are we ready to begin? 
Homicide for the Holidays, Bloody New Year's. Uh, yeah, I think I can't think of anything else I have planned. So, yeah, might okay, as well. Good. I hope you stay for the whole podcast because I value your wit and uh, you make a really good keto quiche, as we covered on yeah, the last episode. Yeah, and I've, uh, and I've uh, yeah, yeah, I think I can manage to carve out some time for this whole episode. Okay, good. We are introduced to David Liu and his wife, Cindy. They actually met on New Year's, so the New Year's holiday is sort of their anniversary. David's father was a store owner in Edmonton, Canada, and Cindy came by around the holiday to watch them shoot off fireworks, and David, a typically shy guy, actually went up and talked to her because he was so smitten with her and found her attractive. They are a Vietnamese-Canadian couple. They marry, and they start a family. Uh, Cindy is a supermom. Her focus is really their children. She also had her own job, but she was raising um, three children at the time that our story begins. On December 29th, 2014, the Liu family are enjoying a quiet evening at home. They finish up dinner around 5.30 p.m., and their kids are doing homework in the living room. David goes upstairs to the master bedroom, and he hears the doorbell ring. Cindy, their 12-year-old son, runs to the door and answers it with Cindy right behind him. Upstairs, David hears a loud bang. He initially thinks it's a dresser falling over. He hits the landing upstairs and sees Cindy on the floor in a puddle of blood, her child standing next to her, and realizes the bang was a gunshot. Inspector Regan James is the duty officer that night. He gets a radio call about a shots-fired event in an upscale neighborhood in southwest Edmonton. He drives to the scene, which he describes in his interview as a beautiful cul-de-sac surrounded by $700,000 houses. Canadian dollars, I should add. Small point, but we are in Canada. This entire story takes place in Interesting a, price point. Yeah. yeah I thought yeah. it was interesting that he chose that particular price point. I thought he was... At probably a fellow um, real estate porn addict um, yeah. that he would have a particular price point in mind in describing houses. Like they weren't just upscale and they weren't million dollar houses. They were $700,000 houses. I just thought that was an interesting yeah. uh, way of describing them. Very nice house though. Nice neighborhood, yeah. nice house. Um, yeah. And uh, a lovely family on a, mm-hmm. New Year's Eve Eve. Um, right. Uh, but he arrives at this lovely scene and he draws his gun because he doesn't know if the shooter is still active. He's just got a report of a gunshot and that's it. Through the front door of the house, he sees David standing over Cindy's body. He's sobbing uncontrollably and Cindy is clearly bleeding out on the floor of the foyer. Uh, he does. The inspector does his best to get the children into the kitchen and away from her. EMS arrives shortly thereafter, and everyone can tell from their expressions. It's just heartbreaking. They interview David about it, that there's no saving Cindy. She's past hope. Uh, this was the part that really crunched my heart. But David's young son, his middle child, is the one um, who opened the door. And so he feels that it's his fault that right. this happened he to his mom. mom. Uh, He identifies the shooter. He's able to talk to the police and give an interview, which is astonishing given the trauma that he's just been through. Given the circumstances, yeah. Yeah. He identifies the shooter as an Asian male who asked for their grandfather in Vietnamese. Um, Cindy shows up at the door instead, obviously, and he shoots her point blank. 
Um, the middle child also goes on to describe the shooter as wearing glasses, being older, and leaving the scene in a dark sedan. So naturally, they put out, the police put out an APB on the shooter and the vehicle, and they also begin canvassing the neighbor, neighborhood while they simultaneously take David Liu and his children to police headquarters to interview them further. Just, um, uh, I, I, right, can you imagine? Like, the doorbell no. rings, this is suddenly and your life. mom is dead. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you're and, all and, off to the police station and being accused of it because, you know, the husband always did it, so... right. What's that line from the closer you always quote? It's always what prevents It's always, it. always, yeah. always the husband. Yeah. Um, but in this case, they're asking David all the tough questions and he's giving all the right answers. Were there drug problems? Were there affairs? They do background checks on David and Cindy both. They don't find any outstanding debts, anything suspicious, anything to suggest a motivation for this shooting. And so and unless David's, he hired somebody to kill her because the child actually witnessed the murder, um, right. it's clear that he didn't physically do it. And so now it seems unlikely that he is connected to this bizarre, random sort of crime. Yeah. So because they found nothing to make him a suspect, they placed the family under police protection at a local hotel. Now at 8.30 p.m. that same night, and the shooting of Cindy happened at 5.30 Another 911 call comes into the Edmonton police. The caller says she has not been able to make contact with her father, 53-year-old Fu Lam. She's also not been able to reach any other member of her quite large family for hours. And she says earlier Fu Lam dropped his infant child off at her house along with another related infant who never gets identified in the course of the special. I'm not sure how pivotal that is, but they never say who the other infant is. Uh, right? I, I mean, I it. assumed it was, it was, from the the telling of it, I assume it was the sister-in-law, but I, you really don't ever know. Right. Um, the daughter reports that her father made some, dis- what they call disparaging remarks to her that she interprets as being potentially suicidal. Later, the special reveals more of the substance of it, but in the beginning, they don't really tell us what the father said, just that the daughter is very concerned and she thinks there's some suicidal ideation involved. Um, But Yeah, he was disturbing. It was a disturbing visit from her father to show up unexpectedly with two babies and say, you know, I love you, goodbye. Yeah, I love you and I may not see you again. They actually do say that part. I, I yeah. got that wrong. So they, they reveal that right away, which is very disturbing. So this call goes to another Edmonton police officer named Sergeant McCormick. So we've got Inspector Regan on one side of town dealing with the, the shooting of Cindy Lou. And then Sergeant McCormick is now responding to this call from the daughter of Fu Lam. And he thinks this is just going to be a welfare check. And they do this all the time. You can call the police. You can tell them. I haven't heard from my loved one. Will you go knock on the door? Will you see if anything's wrong at their house? They don't have the right to enter your home, here at least. I don't actually know how that works in Canada because some of their laws are different. But it sounded like they didn't have that right uh, there either. (laughs) 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. So Sergeant McCormick is responding to the call from Fu Lam's daughter saying she can't get in touch with her father and hasn't been able to reach any member of her family for several hours. And he thinks this is just going to be a welfare check on the residents. Uh, he becomes aware that Fu Lam lives with his wife and two young children. The special gives us some background on how this family came together. In 2003, Fu Lam brought his young wife, Tian, to Canada, and he also sponsored her family to come over from Vietnam. So there are a lot of people living in this house, apparently. Well, not, they're not all living there. Like, her, her extended family doesn't live with them. Oh, okay. Um, the sister right. and the parents are actually, they li apparently live elsewhere, but they're very much a close-knit family that has grown from this um, great generosity on the part of Fulam in, in, in sponsoring them and getting them, paying for them to right. uh, migrate to this country or that country. And none of them are answering their phones. So, which actually makes it even more suspicious because they're not, they're all at different residences and she can't get in touch with any of them. Any of them, which is also disturbing to her. Sergeant McCormick searches the outside of the home and notices fresh footprints in the light, fresh fallen snow, as he describes it. And one of these footprints has a red stain, which they believe is in fact a blood stain. At this point, Sergeant McCormick calls to check in with Inspector James, who was in charge of this, who was still in charge of the Cindy Lou shooting, who it sounds like in, he might be a superior officer that he's just calling to give him kind of a standard report. He explains what he has. They, they responded to this call for a welfare check. They found this potentially bloody footprint. And James says, wait, 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 stop. This is what I have on the other side of town. I have a Vietnamese woman who's been shot in her foyer. You're standing outside a Vietnamese family's home looking at bloody footprints. Um, he, uh, Inspector James leaves his scene, drives over to meet Sergeant McCormick and says, it's, it's likely that these cases are connected and that gives us cause to enter this home, to enter Fulham's home. I have to say, there was, a, there was a moment here where it was like, and here is how... Um, Canadians are completely different from Americans. We then are involved in, I'm going to say, a five-minute-long discussion of their reasoning process and rationale over coming up with um, whether or not it would be okay for them to enter Fulham's house. Right. There's this right. long, all of the police, all of the police officers are there. There's all of this causality and they are really, really debating about whether or not it would be okay for them to go into this house. And what do you think American cops would have been more inclined to do? In that I situation? think I hear somebody screaming, bam. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
but they really and maybe honestly that might be how it unfolded i mean this is what we're getting in the interview well what he says is they decided to do it he went to pick the lock and the door was not locked he just right. opened that was the, the door. big reveal so they were the able to unlocked. just walk in so i think that would probably have been the american thing first to try the knob and if it wasn't locked well then you know, but the door was open. So. There's also there's also another there's a third thing that happens prior to them going to pick the lock, which is the police get another call from another Vietnamese male who can't reach his wife because they had a fight a few days earlier, and he believes that his wife has been staying at Fu Lam's house since the fight. So this is now like three suspicious. Yeah, uh, events happening within the Vietnamese community in Edmonton that are leading back to Fu Lam's home. Okay, so after all this debate and back and forth, as we just described, they enter the house because they discover that the knob is unlocked. They enter, guns out, and they say immediately upon entry, they just discover an unbelievable bloodbath. They see blankets laid over puddles and puddles of blood. They describe it as being splatter and brain matter and coagulated blood everywhere. Sergeant McCormick follows a smear trail. Now, this is where I think they used, and I'm going to sound like an idiot, a a Canadian term for a shell casing that I wasn't quite familiar with. I couldn't even catch it. I played it back. But they were showing what was essentially a shell, a spent shell from a gunshot. Uh on the floor of the kitchen next to the island. In the living room, they find three perfectly lined up bodies who have clearly been dead for some time. They enter the bedroom, and there is a lifeless eight-year-old boy. Um, This was, I think, the most chilling part of the special. The Sergeant McCormick describes how all over the house, the cops who were discovering bodies were calling out what they were discovering, the count, the gender, the approximate age. I've got, you know, this many bodies in the bedroom. I've got this many bodies in the kitchen. Um, just and he said it was just coming from everywhere. It was, it was it a was total one- of seven dead bodies in the house yeah. by the time they were done. It was just, just horrific. Yeah, and the children, um, two yeah. young children and um, four, adu- uh, five adults. Right. So. Um, the, there are three victims in the living room, and it's clear from the dynamics of the scene, as they call it, that they were killed at different times as they entered the homes. The shootings did not happen all at once. Um, Fulam's daughter pro- has provided family photographs that allow the police to begin identifying the bodies. Fulam's young wife, Tian, is one of the bodies. His son, Elvis, is, I believe, the eight-year-old boy that they found upstairs yeah. in the bedroom. Tian's sister, Ha, and her daughter, Valentina. Fulam's in-laws are in the living room. And another Vietnamese male, 41-year-old Viet Nguyen, and they're not entirely sure of his connection to the family initially. Fulam is not among the victims. So they begin a canvas of the neighborhood, just like they did at Cindy Lou's neighborhood after her shooting. They go door-to-door, and a neighbor tells them that Fulam's wife actually drives a dark Mercedes. The Mercedes is not present in the driveway. And somebody they describe as a particularly astute witness gives them the license plate. But it's a little bit easy to remember because it's a personalized license plate. And it is reflective of Tian's son's name. It's Elvis TT. And the I in Elvis is the number one, the digit. 
is this the dark vehicle that was seen leaving Cindy's murder? Because they have a witness on the other side of town who said, I saw the shooter drive off in a dark sedan. Right. <clears throat> so it's beginning to, they're starting to see some overlap. They still can't find a specific connection, but they're, and they're concerned maybe that, it, you know, that it's an assault on the Vietnamese community they, mm-hmm. because they don't have a shooter. They don't have any sort of one of the things they had thought they might find in the house was that it would be a murder suicide. But the shooter, there was no gun and no shooter present. So detectives begin a more extensive interview of Fu Lam's daughter. And she tells them that Fu Lam and his wife had a very volatile relationship. As we know from earlier, Fu Lam brought the entire fam- her entire family over from Vietnam. And in his words, he got no financial or emotional compensation for this. Uh, when he addressed that fact, the couple became estranged. And Tian had started seeing a new man. And that new man was, is, or was at this point, Viet Nguyen, who was the body discovered in the living room, I believe, that they could not initially connect to the other family members. It turns out he is the boyfriend of Fulam's wife. So essentially what was happening... She had gotten a restraining order against Fulam, Mm -hmm. so he wasn't even living at that house anymore. Um, I don't... And that that didn't come from Fulam's daughter, though. I don't think she... That came from... Uh, Tian's sister. They eventually track down Tian's sister, and she gives even more information about how bad the relationship was. I think, if I'm not I mistaken, I thought Tian's sister was killed in the was dead in the house. I think there's another. Oh, you know what? That's I, I'm getting confused. This is a complicated story. Yeah, Tian's sister. That's correct. They they actually go in and they do a background check on all these people in their records, and they discover that Fulam was five hundred thousand dollars in debt. And then they discover that Tian had taken out an application for an emergency protection order against Fu Lam and that it was initially her sister who called the cops to say that there had been a violent altercation between Tian and Fu Lam and that ultimately um, Tian didn't go through with it. She didn't complete the process for the right, emergency protection order. but she applied order. for the emergency protection order and then she canceled. She withdrew her support and they couldn't do it. But yeah, and also worth noting, it's still the night of the 29th. Yeah, right. Yeah, this is happening very, This is unfolding really fast. Yeah. Um, Part of what caused this violent incident between Fu Lam and Tian, his wife, prior to the shooting... I'll say. ...was that he had discovered that Elvis was not his son. He had actually had a DNA testing. Right. He'd been raising him for eight years and he was not his. He had done a DNA test. He confronted Tian's parents with the DNA test first, looking for support, and instead they begged him to forgive her. Instead, he attacked Tian. Now, the version of this event... all Okay, I can't get too far ahead. We'll get back to this. But the allegedly... Um, he tried to choke uh, Tian. There was a sexual element to the assault, assault, allegedly, and he threatened to kill the whole family, allegedly. That's when Tian's sister called the police and they started the process, which they never ultimately completed because Tian withdrew the charges. All of this information is coming to light and they have no connection yet to Cindy Lou's murder. Nothing. They show uh, Cindy's husband, David, a photo of Fu Lam. He has no idea who the guy is. 
They're they're pinging Fulam uh, cell phone, excuse me, and the same location is coming up over and over and over again. It's in a neighboring community called Fort Saskatchewan. It's 16 miles to the east. They dispatch officers to the location, and there they discover Tian's vehicle, the dark Mercedes with the personalized license plate. Right. So it's pretty um, much clear that he, and it's also where he worked. Right. It is a Vietnamese restaurant where he worked, and the vehicle is not frosted over, so they say it's been recently driven. That's how cold it was outside. We're in Canada right. Interesting in fact, although it's Edmonton in December, so oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. Um they uh, bring a tactical team with them, including helicopters. They're trying to communicate with him inside the restaurant. They're not 100% sure he's even in the restaurant, but nobody is responding to their attempts. His phone is in the restaurant, they know for And sure. it is still the night of the 29th. Absolutely. So they believe he's either dead inside or he's preparing for a gunfight. And they do what's called a tactical entry, which means they just bre- they just kick the shit out of everything. Basically, they go in with a SWAT team. They breach the glass. Um, I don't actually know if they're called SWAT teams in Canada, so forgive me if I got that wrong. Who knows? Inside, they find Fu Lam dead of a self-inflicted single gunshot wound to the head. The weapon that he used is the weapon used in all of the shootings, including Cindy's, but we still don't know why he killed Cindy. The other motives are incredibly obvious. Um, We've been given a terrible story about a family falling apart and false paternity and deception and affairs and all that sort of stuff, but nobody is clear on where Cindy, in all that immediate churn, there's no connection to Cindy Lou. So uh, it's then that the special gives us a timeline of the killings. Okay, early in the morning, that morning around 8 a.m., Fulam shoots Tian and her sister upstairs in the house. He then shoots his niece and Elvis, eight years old, execution style. He then uses Tian's phone to lure her parents to his house. He executes them upon entry. This is beginning to explain why the dynamics of the living room crime scene were so, why it appeared that they were shot at different times. He lures Tian's boyfriend into the garage, I assume by asking him to drive over and meet him there so that he doesn't see the other bodies. But it's the same technique. He believes that he's meeting her. He uses her phone and Mm -hmm. texts him to meet meet her there. And of course, it's Fu Lam and not Tian, so... Right. And he shoots uh, Tian's boyfriend in the garage and kills him. So that's a mistake. I earlier said that Viet's body was in the uh, living room. It was clearly in the garage. because that's No, the... it was in the living room. He dragged oh, him in right. there, too. He dragged All three him in of the, the Their three bodies were lined up in the living room. So he dragged them there. But yeah, he, but yeah, he must have. He couldn't have come through the front door because there would have been carnage everywhere from where he mm-hmm. killed the parents. So there was no having him come in that way. And it's, this is when we connect up with Fu Lam's daughter and her reason for making the phone call. He chooses not to kill um, the infant daughter, his own infant daughter? Yes, is that the his case? own infant okay. daughter, or he believes it's his own infant daughter, yeah. and um, a toddler, which I assume was the sister-in-law's this, child. Uh, yeah, and he delivers them to his daughter. And that's when he makes the weird, strange remarks to his daughter, which precipitated her phone call to the police, which initially brought them to Fulam's home. (laughs) 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So having established the entire timeline of the shootings at Fu Lam's home, we now know that he left the home in Tian's Mercedes, drove to Cindy Lou's house, and shot her at 5.30 in the evening. We still don't know why he shot Cindy. After he shoots Cindy, he, drove, he drives to Fort Saskatchewan, where he takes his own life with the same gun he used in all of the other killings. So we have been waiting this entire special for an answer as to why he right, murdered we Cindy. we started at the, at the at, I guess, the Lou's house. I guess that's their name. Yeah, the Lou home. Uh, it, and what we're given is this. He had a long ago dispute with Cindy's father, and he went there to get revenge and presumably kill Cindy's father. He did ask her, for him in Vietnamese when he first yeah, got there. But her father was vacationing in Vietnam, and were then told the dispute with Cindy's father had nothing to do with the motives for the other murders, but they never tell us what the dispute with Cindy's father was. No, they just say there was one, and it was longstanding, and he was just sort of wrapping things up, apparently, and so he couldn't kill the father, so he got his revenge on the father by killing the man's daughter and those children's mother in front of the children. Just hideous. Un- it, unbelievable, unbelievable. I mean, I think that we talk about we. You have to talk about stuff like this when you when you do true crime stories, and it's always a it's a weird line that you have to walk because there are men. What Fulham was put through by that family was terrible. Finding out that your son is not yours. I have to say. I mean, usually I don't have any sort of understanding of people's criminal behavioral choices. And Mr. Lamb was wrong 100%. 100%. Bad solution, bad idea, terrible permanent solution to, you know, what was admittedly a terrible problem. But it's one of those cases where the the motivation is like, yeah, I kind of see how this might cause you to snap. Like, And there were, right, there were moments in the narration. She's sleeping with somebody else. He's thrown out of his own house at the holidays. He learns that his son that he's been raising for eight years isn't even his. He's gone into an enormous amount of debt to rescue this family. And they're not paying him back. And he's, you know, I mean, just like, oh, my God. I just. But and and the special seemed to confuse justification with motivation because the people there was some of the talking heads said, well, there was just nothing to motivate. And it's like, no, the motivation was there. It doesn't make it right. We know why he did this. This wasn't. A, a, a series of Ted Bundy serial murders. This was a man in a rage like, over things that were actually happening, but his solutions were absolutely abominable and reprehensible. And we've done two holiday specials where, no, you know, where, no, right. it's not. Like, the Christmas one, the guy was, like, getting revenge on people who hadn't done anything to him. And right. the 
the um the Thanksgiving one was the guy getting revenge on a family because he was jealous of them. Right. Because yeah. they got more attention from his parents than he did. Like those are not the same. Those do not those are people who with serious mental something is wrong with that. But with this guy you know, I think there's a mental lapse that you would make this decision, but the motivation was, it's one of the first times where I was like, oh my God, that poor man. I mean, I, again, killing your family, not okay. But he did not these horrible okay. things that are unforgivable. But it was like, I, but he was really somebody who was treated like crap. I mean, he but, was treated but on, really badly by those people. On top of that, all of them are dead and nobody is around to tell the story today. So all the information that we have about this is coming from a daughter who apparently didn't live in that home. And, and that's it. I mean, we don't from even a previous have, marriage, I guess, like, like I, they didn't yeah. discuss the previous marriage either or how it, it ended. Just, yeah, it was, um, but yeah, it was a not a great case one, for yeah. mail order brides. Yeah. Cause I yeah. guess that was kind of the, if she was, you know, like, I guess that's how he got, how they wound up getting together. I don't know that he went to Vietnam, met her, fell in love, and they got married. And then he, it didn't sound that way. It sounded but, more male ordery. I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's just, and I think, again, because nobody is alive to tell the story. I mean, you, you can't explore whether or not it was supposed to be just a business arrangement. And he then demanded certain a certain level of whatever. And she didn't want to give it. Even the thing with Cindy Lou is entirely speculative. Like, there's right. absolutely no information. They think that it was about getting in revenge for the grandfather because he asked for the grandfather when he first got there. Right. But they don't know that. Yeah. You know, like she may be the one who owed him, he owed all the money to. Right. Or she may have been the one who introduced him to the wife who um, screwed him over so badly. Or, I, you know, like, who knows? Or the wife may have said that Cindy Lou knew who the father was, you know, that right. they'd known all along that he'd been cuckolded. I don't know what, but, the you know, so much is just supposition at this point because... Everybody involved is dead. Everybody. I mean, it was like everybody. It was like, I'm not even sure. I guess when they went, the police went to establish the substance of the emergency protection order that Tian was trying to, or initiated against Fulam, they were working off of whatever the reports were that were taken, the formal reports. But, you know, at the detail that there was a sexual component to the attack on her during the fight, there was nobody around to attest to that or to prove to that. I mean, it, it was just, it was a really, they're always, they're always a horrible story, but there was something particularly horrible about this because they were all dead. I don't know how else to say it. They were all dead. And nobody who had the answers was around. And I think that um, the systematic targeting of the family, the luring them over with the phone was one of the more disturbing very, things we've ever covered. It was covered. very premeditated. This was yeah. a revenge killing. This was about somebody very carefully thinking through the entire process. Yeah. Like, he would have had to have gotten the wife to unlock her phone before he killed her. Oh, my God. I didn't even think about that. Oh, my God. You know, like, this was incredibly well thought out. Mm-hmm. Or tell him what the password was or whatever. Yeah. I, but, like, the the moment where I'm like, revenge or not, you're a fucking monster, Fulam, oh, yeah. is eight-year-old Elvis was not complicit in no. some sort of false paternity the, scheme. The sister-in-law's and, daughter was not 
complicit no. in any of this. And Cindy Lou was across town with her own family. Yeah, it's just, and this is the thing that men do that I think terrifies us, which is when this when these rage moments happen, they wipe out family members like they belong to them, like their possessions, like they're disposable. That like the extent, and I know I, I know women can be capable of it too, but we see it so often with men when they completely snap. The whole family, I have failed as a father, and the whole family is punished. The You're whole family is wiped me. out. Yeah, and it's I mean it's beyond toxic masculinity it's in another realm it's 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 something animalistic and yet ego driven at the same time that i can't even really wrap my head around i, I wonder I, if there I is mean, a there is a comparable sort of murder suicide equivalent in uh, in women i remember there was a, a woman in south carolina who drove the car with she and the children into susan smith I, uh, the like the children drowned and she didn't and so Susan ended up getting tried but there's the the couple the who drove the the truck the um the car in Washington oh, yeah. Oregon off a cliff Oregon. with the yeah. fa- the whole family California inside. that was actually Mendocino yeah that that I think is actually a really solid example of of what you're looking for you're right they were there is a there's an incredibly disturbing but well done podcast about that case I believe called Broken Hearts and that was a lesbian couple who were fostering um, several different children they were not taking good care of the kids they were about to be exposed for not having taken very good care of the kids and they piled them into an SUV and um, they had kind of been on the road for a while running from the sort of gradual consequences of their actions and they drove oh, off a cliff in Mendocino California off of PCH and it killed the whole family. So yeah, I think that it, that is actually an example because they were wiping out in some sense the evidence of, of what they were being accused of, which was being negligent foster parents who simultaneously projected on social media an image of being these wildly right. perfect and progressive and loving and spiritual people and, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, that's definitely a story out there. I think Susan I wonder Smith, if those are outliers or if those are if that's actually a strain of because it's about the children more with those people with the, mm-hmm. with with um with women in this particular in these both of these cases. I don't know if that's typical or if that's a, a thing or if if um if it is just an equivalent. I, I don't know if the that the women kill the husbands as well or. I mean, obviously, the lesbian couple, there wouldn't be a husband involved, but but Susan Smith didn't kill her husband or even try and hurt I, him. I think the later revelation was Susan Smith was trying to get rid of the kids because she had a boyfriend. I thought that w- I may, that may not be right, but she was trying to stage an accident where the little kids would drown and she would live and she could Maybe. be free of the family. I can't remember. The boyfriend didn't want the kids anyway. God, and then there's that horrible case of that crazy woman, the who thought that her children had been taken over by the devil. So she killed them both. And that's a fairly recent case that, yeah, the woman in Linda Vall, isn't that her name? Vall? Lori Daybell, the Daybell Daybell. case. Yeah. The ones, the Mormons, the radical Mormons. Yeah, totally. God, my God, there are a lot of really bad parents out there. Eric Shaw Quinn, we left out. I know it's one of those things where it's like, it's, we let people do it without licensing them. You know, it's like, (laughs) Hmm. I'm not sure. Like it was one of the things I got when we watched that um that HBO special, uh Crazy Not Insane. Mm-hmm. Um we talked about the, that briefly in the previous episode. Talking about what the yeah. parents had done to the kids, because that was one of her premises that 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 murderers uh, 
who get involved had been profoundly um, traumatized as children. The stuff that parents do to kids on an ongoing basis that I hear about just, I, it's like, and we just let anybody have kids. I, you know, I know there's no stopping people, but, but it, it does, it calls the, the whole thing into question. This is a really important job and mm-hmm. you should be prepared to do a good job and held to account for the job that you do. The, the ability, like what Fulam did to, to Elvis was like, whether it was really biologically his son or not, we see that parents do that with who's the um, I think it's the day of thinking of the case and not being able to think of not the name because we have so name. much true crime. And it was just a Netflix special that released recently to this recording, an American family, I think it was called or an American murder, but it was Chris Watts, Chris Watts, right? Being able to kill those children because they were witnesses to his murder of their mother, being able to see your children as possessions whose existence you are free to revoke when it's in incon- when their lives stop being convenient to you. I mean, I-, I think it's probably one of the reasons I didn't pursue having children. One is I didn't have a partner that I wanted to raise them with, but it is enormous responsibility and you don't have an exit ramp, an ethical exit ramp once you decide to enter into it. You can't just yeah. say, no, it's forever. Know, right. It's forever. And when we encounter these stories in which grown-ups can treat children as expendable in this way, their lives as expendable, it's particularly horrifying. Yeah, it can be really the, the the cases where people have done things like kill the whole family and then leave and start a new life. Oh God, yeah, and live a whole new get build it, marry somebody else and have a whole new family and the whole whatever, and then years later they're found through the, those kinds of stories just sort of chill your blood because it's like, yeah, this isn't working out. So, Jettison. I just, yeah. Yeah, there was I, one on Unsolved Mysteries about uh, uh, the, 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 the first season, this new round of Unsolved Mysteries where a Frenchman, they actually did the whole episode in French. Oh, yeah? And a Frenchman just, yeah, wipes out his whole family and then, you know, takes off and... They're not really sure, and you know, like, what oh does that God. take? What, yeah. what is the what is missing in your brain if you can do that? I just, I don't know. The guilt would just destroy me. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that stood out about this case is that so rarely in these kinds of things am I able to really get my head wrap my head around the motivation. In this one, while I certainly don't agree with it, this was a man who had been wronged in a yeah. really big and profound way and while bad solution i i see his pain you know mm-hmm. i saw the man's pain and and the holidays can't have made it better to see his wife in the house that he's been asked to leave that he paid for um and is probably still paying for with the boyfriend that she has replaced him with and the child she has tricked him into raising um, all these years, I just wow. That, but is, is that's it a lot? Is it? We talk about this a lot. Is this like the video game example? Is this like the pornography example? Right, where people like there are plenty. Was there something unique to Fulham's brain, to his psychology and his neurology, that made him uh, predisposed to react to this in this way? Because pe- this could happen to somebody else and they're not going to go on a shooting spree. It's well, you not know a what given. occurred to me? One of the things that I thought of as I was watching the special was I wondered if at what point Fulam had, um, mig- had migrated 
to Canada? Like, did he, was he raised as a child during the conflict in Vietnam? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. is that, is that the nature of his childhood of seeing whole villages wiped out? And, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of, the Vietnam War was horrific at a lot Mm -hmm. of levels and great atrocities were a part of that war. And if you were a child there, I guess a part of your life. And I would think that that would shape one's, connection to that kind of behavior mm. in a way that that might you know present have it present itself as an actual alternative to you mm-hmm. whereas you know if you hadn't been if you were just raised in the suburbs of Edmonton you might not ever have thought of that sort of thing but if you were raised in a world that included the My Lai massacre mm-hmm. it might not have seemed like completely out of bounds yeah, as a possible at, choice, or maybe it's a cultural thing. You know, the sort of honor-killing world of I'm going to set this straight. I I don't know. It do, the Vietnamese culture that I'm aware of does not seem to be a particularly warlike or violent culture. So I, I wouldn't until guess we that, showed up. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, the yeah. French really, but the yeah, French, we, right. But until we until the West um, shows up with their yeah. ag- various and sundry agendas for their country. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, those that, are good questions. I don't know if we're not going to answer them in this episode because we don't have time. And they time, weren't addressed yeah. at all, but it did occur to me as as we were looking at this man coming to this kind of place in his life. I don't know. Like, I, I've i never arrived. I've certainly, I guess I've entertained sort of fantasies of revenge, but even then, it didn't include doing this sort of uh, mayhem. Yeah, and children. I just I I can't. And, and what about his relationship with his grown daughter, with whom he could presumably have had a life, and and his own family, who's worried about him or, and calling. I mean, or the other two children who he just left at her house, or yeah. the children of the woman who he murdered in cold blood for no good reason other than he wanted to, you know, kick her father in the shin before he shot himself. Yeah. Like I, Jesus Christ. It is, it is a pretty disturbed and dark place that one would have to find one's way into, but I don't know. Do you ever think yeah. about revenge? Uh, 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 not the revenge that I would fantasize about would be patient and systemic and probably not violent. I like, you know, you know, there are right, people you want them li- to suffer for a long time. Like, well, that's and- the revenge I fantasize about things that where people's reputations are destroyed or there's, you know, long term consequences. But- Bang, you're dead is not really that's not really very satisfying, but sort of not ethical consequence, karmic consequences. Yes. Right. It's like oh. the thing you always say that sometimes people who wrong you show up in your life again and the universe arranges for you to have a front row seat to the karmic retribution for the wrong. Oh, that they my did God. It has happened yeah. to me again and again. The universe does a much better job of it than you ever could. And it's yeah. been it has been my experience over the years that I have gotten to see the aftermath or been presented with sometimes ringside seats to the aftermath of people's really hideous behavior towards me. And yeah, I will say a surprising number of people who have done horrible things to me are dead. Like but you didn't have anything to do with I had it. Let's be very clear. You had nothing I'd, to do with it. No, yeah. of course not. No, not ever. But like, yeah, like, huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, wow. That's, and plenty have been, have been subjected to circumstances that I won't go into on the air because I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, risk, 
drilling down into somebody else who's had a a bad uh, patch in life, but where I have been seated right there going, wow, I'm really, I could not have done better than this if I had been planning this. But I want to believe in justice still. I don't want to sound starry-eyed and naive, but I want to believe in justice. And I think there are people, particularly difficult horrible people I've dealt with in life who are all about empty threats, you know, and sort of shouting empty threats. And the the people who always threaten to sue you never do. They never do. They're threatened because they're not actually going to do it. But if you're somebody who is actually capable of suing and you're capable of going the distance and you have to be patient and you have to dot your I's and you have to dot your T's, that's the problem with that fucking idiot Donald Trump. I know we don't usually get political is that he's systemically he's a mess because he doesn't he's he's, he can't focus enough on what would actually be a calculated, dangerous, damaging response to his opponents. He's all about performance and bluster and whatever. And most people that I've dealt with who have been really horrible have been like that. But if you're somebody who has the patience and the resources to sue, you can do a lot of justify damage to people who have fucked you over, you know? Well, and I will say this using the um, former president as an example. Um, One of the things that is justice, whether it is delivered in the way that you think that it should be or in the most um, retributive sort of way is how miserable people like that make themselves Mm, mm -hmm. to have had the life that he has had and to have lived and been given all the gifts that that man has been given. I can think of few people on earth who are more miserable than he is. And that seems like a form of justice that the universe has delivered up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, my heart actually goes out to him. I, I am sorry that somebody who has been given that many gifts has chosen to do this with them and to yeah. make himself as miserable and unhappy and paranoid as he seems to be. I, I just think that's tragic. Absolutely. And, and, a, and a form of justice for his own, you know, inexcusable behavior. Mm-hmm. All right. Then. I think that's a perfect note to end this episode on. I want to talk some about what our next episode is going to be about. Unlike uh, usually we alternate True Crime TV Club with other topics, but this time we are doing a doubleheader in more ways than one. Next week will also be True Crime TV Club, but it will be a supersized one. Eric and I have decided to Double focus... Stuff. Focus on the first true crime stories that affected us as young children. And we have each found a television true crime special that covers those cases. I will be serving up an episode of People Magazine Investigates entitled Without a Trace. That is season four, episode three. This covers the disappearance of Kevin Collins from the San Francisco Bay Area in 1984, which traumatized me as a child living there. Eric will be serving up an episode of A Crime to Remember entitled 38 Witnesses. I forgot to write down the season number and episode number in our show notes. Eric it's Shaw Quinn, do you season, have it? I think it's season two, episode eight. Uh, hold on season one second. Season two, let episode me, eight. Okay. Let me make sure of that before we, um, before we sign off. It is uh, season two, episode one. Episode one, the, the episode title is 38, 38 Witnesses, Witnesses, and that is documenting the horrifying murder of Kitty Genovese. And as always, we remind you, you, there is absolutely no requirement that you watch the episodes in advance. Our job is to serve them up to you 
as if you have, or in a way that will make you feel as if you have. So that's all of the disclaimery game show announcer stuff I have to say. Now, we'll have all the dirt next week, whether you watch or not. Absolutely. <laughs> Until then, and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Happy New Year. Thanks. This is TDPS.